Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcast, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only program brought to you by Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Matt Chatterton. On the show this week, the pool of death at the Rugby World Cup looks to have claimed its first victim, as too has the eligibility saga that has plagued New Zealand football for the past two months. Golf in New Zealand is hitting an all-time high, as is surfing, which could be on show at the 2020 Olympics. Plus we hear from cricketer Kane Williamson and WRC driver Hayden Padden about their upcoming events. Alright, to start this week's show off, we are going to cover off all things Rugby World Cup related with our rugby editor Barry Guy. Barry, we're into our second week of the tournament now. How do you think it is shaping up? Well, mate, you'd have to say the most interesting uh, part of uh, the tournament so far is Pool A, which perhaps we were expecting. The Pool of uh, Death with uh, England, Australia, uh, Wales and perhaps Fiji vying for positions in the quarterfinals. Wales are now on top of the group. Three from three, and they've had that uh, historic win over England. A dramatic performance, and I see we've got uh, lots of comments have come through on that. Uh, Graham Henry did say he was interested that um, some of the decisions England made he found a little interesting, and and perhaps that was the the root of their problems in that uh, shots at goal should be taken. Um, decisions on the field perhaps uh, bewildered him somewhat and and England maybe lost that more than uh, Wales won it. I'm taking nothing away from Wales. But they're in the prime position now. They look set to go through. Mathematically, they could still be overtaken. And so it comes down to Sunday morning's game between Australia and England. And if, if Australia win that, then England are more or less out of the competition. And that would be a huge upset. The organisers wouldn't be too happy because uh, also it would be the first time that the hosts haven't made it out of the group stages. So, uh, yeah, the uh, the crux of uh, whole of uh, Group A gets decided more or less this weekend at Twickenham. Considering the amount of hype that went into England being in this competition and being, you know, a front-runner to take out the William Webb Ellis Trophy, is it really a big loss, do you think, just for organisers or also fans? Is it like, or and the players even of other teams? Is it is it a massive loss if England aren't in the in the final group stages? Uh, for everyone outside of England, probably not. 
the English, of course, would be uh, hugely upset and the rugby union and, and the likes, and I'm assuming Stuart Lancaster would probably get the flick. I always remember in previous tournaments that the English media would always say to me, the All Blacks uh, don't know how to win in um, the, a tournament. The pressure is on them because uh, they're the number one team in the world, the All Blacks, and they just don't know how to cope with it. That, of course, has changed since 2007, and the All Blacks have been on an incredible roll. I think it's now happening to England. Of course, they're not the number one team in the world, but they are the hosts, and, of course, there is immense pressure on them to win. Um, last time was, what, 2003? And I do think that... Um, they're struggling a little bit with the weight of expectation and perhaps their preparation hasn't been ideal and um, we may now be seeing uh, the result of that and uh, they're not performing as well as they should and yeah, it would be uh, hugely disappointing for uh, for all the locals but I'm sure there's plenty of people in South Africa and Australia and New Zealand that um, would probably uh, be quite happy to see England uh, miss out. Yeah, I mean, if you take a look at uh, Mike Brown's interview following their loss to Wales, you could really see that he was struggling to comprehend what had happened. Let's move forward a little bit to the All Blacks now. They've got Georgia this weekend, a game, or a team, should I say, that they have never played before. Don't know a hell of a lot about them. What do you expect out of this game from the All Blacks? I expect uh, the All Blacks to uh, go pretty well, actually. Yeah, something similar to Namibia. Both the Namibia and now Georgia are you know, very aggressive up front. And I think that's interesting that they've brought White Crockett and Charlie Farmer Wiener into the front row. Whether they're holding back Tony Woodcock and Owen Franks, I'm not too sure, or a chance for Crockett and Farmer Wiener to impress and trying to get into that starting lineup. But there is going to be a real contest uh, up front. But again, I think the skill out back will be the difference between the two sides. And, um, you know, there should be, should be plenty of tries. You know, I don't think we can expect any more than perhaps uh, 50 points um, for an all-black victory. But Richie McCaw has said he wasn't entirely happy with the first couple of uh, games and that he wants a big step up here. So I expect that to happen. Could be uh, tight to start with, could be a big battle up front, but I do expect the skills of the all-blacks to uh, see them through comfortably. That's our rugby editor, Barry Guy. Earlier this week, New Zealand football's high-performance director, Fred de Jong, resigned. Many pundits believe the former All-White is taking a dive for the recent eligibility issues NZF have faced following the under-23 men's side expulsion from an Olympic qualifying tournament by the Oceania Football Confederation. The Ollie Whites were disqualified from the tournament in Papua New Guinea after it deemed the defender Declan Wynn was ineligible to play, but he did anyway in the side's semi-final win over Vanuatu. NZF launched an appeal against the IOC's decision regarding their expulsion and the way it was handled. The appeal hearing took place in Auckland last week. I spoke to Fred de Jong about why he decided to resign now. We've held an internal review and around the eligibility issue, um, we're in the middle of, a, of a, an appeals hearing, so I don't really want to go into the ins and outs of, um, you know, of, of, the, of the issues within that, the appeal. Um, but I think you know, it, it's, the, the issues arisen within the high-performance department, and I'm leading that department, so you know, I have to be, you know, accept 
a level of accountability for that, and that's what I've done. I mean, you've spent 10 years on the board at New Zealand Football and you've been in the uh, in the high-performance role for three years. Does uh, does going out on this sort of note leave a sour taste in your mouth at all? Um, no, no, well, not really. Um, you know, I've, uh, I've, <laughs> I've enjoyed the, all the time I've had with, uh, with New Zealand Football and I think um, you know, through those, you know, what, what has been about 13 years, um, you know, it's been... Sometimes they've been very, very good, and um, and there's been other times where you think, man, this is uh, this is this is tough. So, you know, um, it's part and parcel of working in sport, I think. Um, so I'm pretty comfortable with some of the good things I've done through that 13 years, and um, you know, and and I think there are some times when I look back, uh, and I, and I think maybe I would have changed the decision, or maybe would have, I would have done something slightly differently. But I think I'm comfortable that right through the period I've worked in the best interests of New Zealand football. Uh, would one of those uh, moments be then, I guess, the Declan Wynn scenario? Well, yeah, of, of course. I mean, there's, you know, as I, as I said before, it's been a difficult period for the organisation. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of people working very hard to try and you know, win back the, the Olympic place for the men's under-23 team. And you know, through the through the, he- the appeals process, hopefully we can do that. This wasn't a matter that you were asked to resign, was it? No, like I say, I've uh, decided to resign, and um, you know, one and part of the decision around that resignation is around um, is around the eligibility um, issues that we've that we've been facing. Had you always hoped to possibly move on uh, after after this ten years you've had on the board and three years in the role? Um. Well, it hasn't been a. It was never when I came into this role. It wasn't like I said, "Oh, I'm going to do three years and then, and then move on." So, you know, this is. But, you know, this is this is how it's it's played out, and I just felt that um, you know, handed in my resignation uh, partway through last week. The decision to hand it in last week was that in any relation to the um, appeal sort of taking place last week? Uh no, no, it wasn't. Um, looking forward to the future, have you put any plans in place for what you might do after December this, when you leave after the end of the year? Uh, well, first and foremost, I'm going to have a break, um, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to spend a, some a decent amount of time with uh, my family. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty, it's a hard job. You work, you know, very long hours as a high performance director, and you know that's at at the cost um, to your family, and so they they deserve a lot of my time, and that's what they'll be getting. Fred de Jong will leave NZF at the end of the year. Taking a look at some more positive news, New Zealand golfer Danny Lee has capped off his breakthrough season on the PGA Tour with a tie for second at the season-ending Tour Championship in Atlanta. In July this year, Lee won his first tournament on the PGA Tour, the Greenbrier Classic, picking up close to a million American dollars. The result in Atlanta catapulted Lee to ninth on the FedEx Cup standings for the year, giving him an extra $800,000 for the season. All up, he made about $7 million. He's also shot up to number 36 in the world rankings. That is the third highest ranking by a New Zealander ever in golf rankings. Lee's now preparing for the President's Cup in his country of birth, South Korea, where he'll take on America's best. Just to qualify for this tournament, he had to be within the top 10 international golfers throughout the world, which he is.
I asked former PGA Tour professional Phil Tatarangi if Jenny can now be considered one of the PGA Tour's up-and-coming stars. Yeah, he is. He's, he's putting his name consistently into that conversation of, I guess, the next tier of um, great young players. And I think, uh, as Kiwis, we've kind of been a little bit biased, maybe, that... Um, uh, that you know that we're expecting these sorts of things out of him. However, you know when you you come up against um, young guys that are in the third year of their career and they've just set all sorts of crazy PGA Tour records on the season and catch a back-to-back major championships, um, it's a pretty tough school that, that he's in. And so, therefore, um, you know Danny, his apprenticeship maybe took a little bit longer than the likes of of Fowler and, and Jason Day to to find his feet on the PGA Tour, but. Um, you know, yet to 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 raise a major major trophy, but maybe that's not too far away. Um, when you when you look at the pace that he's been keeping over this last six months, uh, now that he's got on board with Drew Strickle, do you really do you see like these floodgates could certainly open up for him? Well, I think there's been a lot of uh, consistency across Danny's approach to the game, and that you know one part of that is of course his support team and. And certainly the work that he's been doing with Drew has been more process-focused than it has been outcome-focused. And when I mean that, I mean that he's um, he's he's been very consistent um, as approach to the work that he's been doing. Just because it didn't work um, the first week out, um, he's managed to, you know, he hasn't ditched it, he's, he's stuck with it. And um, and he's known that over the period of time, at some stage or another, he would start playing the sort of golf week in, week out that he is now. And so um, certainly Drew's had a, uh, a huge input to that, um, just being out on the road week in, week out with Danny and, and keeping Danny's mind focused on the right things because it can be a fickle um, place out on the range on the PGA Tour that if things don't cut, start going well or they start going poorly um, you can start second guessing your technique a little bit and um, what Drew's done is he's continued to remind Danny hey you're on track, you're you're doing the things that we want you to do Um, stick with it and um, around the corner will be some results and uh, consequently I think Drew's been right on the money um, I see now he's ranked uh, 35th in the world, well that's the projected ranking he'll go to tomorrow Uh, in the context of things, you had Cambo at uh, 13 and then Nobolo made like the top 20. In the context of today's game, though, with all those great players, uh, that is uh, an, quite an impressive feat, isn't it? Well, it is, yeah. And, and certainly we're taking nothing away from um, from the era that Frank played in predominantly and, of course, Cambo's achievements. Um, you know, it's hard to, to make comparisons between different generations or different eras. Um, but what you are seeing is that um, right now it's, it's extremely competitive out on the PGA Tour and, and and you don't climb the world rankings like Danny has, you know, over 170 places um, in under 10 months. You don't you don't see those sorts of rises up the world rankings without a series of consistent play and uh, so consistently at the high end. And, and what are the... Um, close to 10 top 10s on the season I might be mistaken 8, 9, 10 top 10s on the season and when you when you do that not only do you rack up a fair bit of cash in the old back pocket a lot of FedEx Cup points which culminate in today's result but um, 
you climb the world rankings, you're considered as one of the better players in the world, you play yourself into a whole heap of tournaments um, by automatic exemption, and um, and life looks pretty good from that stage. Sticking with golf, one of the world's biggest amateur tournaments is coming to New Zealand in 2017. The Royal Wellington Golf Club will host the 2017 Asia-Pacific Amateur Championship. The tournament has massive benefits for both golfers and the general public throughout the region, as New Zealand Golf Chief Executive Dean Murphy pointed out to me. Yeah, well, I guess in terms of, you know, talking about it being a major event, you think about the production spend to put the event on and you think about the broadcast coverage and the exposure that it generates. And, you know, this is a multi, multi-million dollar tournament that's coming to New Zealand and the broadcast going to over 160 countries, you know, live telecasters, you know, puts it right up there in terms of the biggest professional events ever held in New Zealand. And clearly there's no prize money that they're playing for being an amateur tournament, but in terms of the... Um, the actual spend and the experience that surpasses most professional events I've ever been to. I mean, the, the event here in Hong Kong has um, the opening ceremony last night was fireworks and shows and displays and different um, different cultural things that put it far and away um, ahead of a lot of a professional events. So, uh, and I think that's down to the people involved. Um, Augusta National Golf Club and the RNA put a lot of resource and time and effort into this event. They really want it to be one of the leading amateur events in the world, and it certainly established itself as that. I mean, it's still relatively young. It only started in 2009, so you know, we're only six years into it now, and by the time it comes to New Zealand, it would have further evolved, and every year the tournament gets bigger and bigger, and the opportunities for players are obviously what's most exciting. I mean, you know, the winner will get a spot at Augusta National for the Masters next year, and then uh, into final qualifying for the Open Championship. So, huge opportunity for the players, and just a wonderful thing to come, have come to New Zealand. There have been a couple of pretty decent winners that have come out of this tournament. So you think of your Hideki Matsuyama, who's been carving it up on the PGA Tour, and uh, Wan Tin Lang from China, the young fellow that got to play with, uh, I think it was Dustin Johnson and Tiger Woods at the uh, at the. Uh, Masters tournament in a practice round. Uh, it's a great, uh, it's a great place or breeding ground, I suppose. This tournament for players to go on to bigger events, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and I think the tournament slogan or the you know the catchphrase they always say is the stars of tomorrow, and it it really is. I mean, you've mentioned a couple of those winners, uh, Hideki Matsuyama, obviously a really high profile person that's come through this pathway, and you know the the tournament this year and next year and the year after will certainly have future major champions playing in the field, and it's um you know it's a great chance for these young amateurs as just prior to heading off into the professional world to uh, showcase their skills. And in terms of tournaments that uh, you can you qualify for or can qualify for if you win this event, um, just for the people that don't probably uh, follow golf as closely as what you and I do, could you give us a bit of a run through of how special it is to uh, you know have your name uh, on the starting list at a tournament like the Masters? Well, it's an incredibly special. I mean, many very, very top golfers go their whole career without getting a start at the Masters. It's such a limited field. Um, only 90-odd players get to play, and, you know, the top 50 in the world plus a whole lot of invites, and very, very difficult to get into that field. So for an amateur playing in this tournament um, each year gets an invite and an exemption straight into the field of the Masters, which is a literally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and something that very few golfers get to experience. So that's a wonderful thing for them. Um, added to that is they get a pass straight through to final qualifying for the Open Championship uh, up in the UK. So that, again, is you know obviously golf's oldest major and incredibly prestigious. So for the winner of this event to get straight into final qualifying for that event is just a huge thrill for them. 
That was Dean Murphy there from New Zealand Golf. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only podcast brought to you by Radio New Zealand Sport. Tokyo 2020 Olympic organisers announced this week the five extra sports they'd like to have at the Games. Surfing, baseball and softball, karate, skateboarding and climbing will be presented to the IOC as the five extra sports outside the core sports. Game hosts are given a chance to bring one or more sport into the games each year to boost ratings and also to attract greater sponsorship. The International Olympic Committee will make their final decision on the sports in August. Barry Guy spoke to Ben Kennings from Surfing New Zealand about their possible inclusion and what it would mean for their sport. You know, once you're part of that um, Olympic family, you get a lot bigger profile. I think your sport's considered a lot more mainstream. Uh, so that all helps, certainly with the profile, like you say. And then, um, you know, with Sport New Zealand, uh, we would have access to high-performance funding, so that would really um, help with our top athletes and be able, you know, being able to get them quality coaching and, you know, and training and using their facilities, which I think would be a huge benefit for the sport. Are there any issues as far as you're concerned of it to surfing being considered more than perhaps a recreation? There's always the surfers that are out there um, purely for recreation, and that's the majority of surfers. So they like going out after work, um, like you do going running around the block or going and having a game of squash with your friends. Um, you go out and have a surf, so you're not competing. But there's always going to be that high-end um, side to the sport where people do compete. And, you know, they want to be able to compete at the highest level. So whether that's on the World Surf League, which we see on Sky TV uh, monthly, or whether it's at the Olympics every four years, um, and, you know, I, I just I think it'll be massive for the sport. And Tokyo for surfing? I mean, obviously it might it probably won't be in Tokyo Bay, but um, Japan? Yeah, so Japan gets some ama- amazing waves. Uh, they get a lot of typhoon swells there. But what has come on over the last three or four years is wave pool technology, so artificial waves. And I think between now and 2020, I think that will evolve even further. Uh, one of the first um, international events was held in the wave pool less than two weeks ago in Wales. Uh, in fact, Kiwi surfer Billy Stearman placed second at that event. Um, so it, it, could, it would quite possibly be that it's going to be held in artificial waves. Uh, how different is that? And, you know, would New Zealanders need to, you know, try and get used to that? Or is it just like a regular wave? Yeah, well, um, Billy Stearman placed second and he had never surfed in a wave pool before. It it is like a regular wave. I think there's there's, certainly there's going to be some um, small differences. But um, from what I've seen of the footage coming out of Wales, the surf and those wave pools look really fun. I'd love to have a go myself. Uh, but, yeah, I, I guess once you're in the Olympics and you're talking about an Olympic campaign, you'd be foolish not to be training in one of those systems before uh, before you actually competed in one. Squash, unfortunately, misses out again after trying to get into the Olympics. The chief executive of Squash New Zealand, Jim O'Grady, says missing out for a third time has really hit the squash community quite hard. 
There's a, um, a World Squash AGM coming up in November and there'll be a lot of discussion about where to from here. The campaign to get into the Olympics has been very much driven by the president of World Squash who's put a huge amount of time and effort and money into it and it'll be a question of whether he wishes to continue and what the sport itself wants to do. Jim O'Grady says it's not clear if the governing body of World Squash will continue to press for an Olympic berth. It's now just a month until the Black Caps take on Australia in their three-test series across the ditch. The tour will be an historic moment for cricket, with the first pink ball test taking place in Adelaide. I caught up with New Zealand's premier batsman, Kane Williamson, to find out what he learnt from the recent tour of Africa, as well as his expectations for the pink ball test. Yeah, I think personally, uh, captaining a, a quite a new-look side was, was a, a cool challenge. Um, and it was just nice to see um, the way the guys came together and gelled um, to, to put the performances on the board, which on a whole I thought was uh, you know, a really good sort of six weeks of cricket for us um, you know, without some key players. So um, you know, I think um, wherever you go, whoever you play, you're wanting to adapt and try and stay ahead of the game. And um, having done a little bit of captaincy in um, the UAE before, then now sort of in Africa, it's um, you know, those transition things. And also you know, um, learning from Bat. Um, you know, he's, he's the best and um, it, it's great to, to have him um, leading us um, you know, which hopefully he does for, for quite some time um, but um, yeah I mean it was, a, it was an exciting opportunity and I enjoyed it Does he give you uh, many pointers before you go into captain like when you got told that you were going to be you know, captaining the Cyclist Bats or staying at home to, after the African tour did he come and give you a few uh, wise words or had you already sort of picked a few of them up from the UAE tour? Um, no, he actually um, I, I think probably made a conscious effort not to um, say too much um, but you know he was he was always there to talk to we did talk um, a few times during the series um, and, and just shared some thoughts and you know he he's obviously very very good at what he does but also very mindful of um, of the fact that um, you know I was supposed to, I suppose I was um, captaining the side for for the the month or so while he wasn't there and he, and he, he sort of I suppose stepped away and, and just uh, watched and and let, um, let it unfold a little bit so um, you know he's, he's a great bloke to have to, to learn from and, um, and and do a little bit of captaincy but like I say it's it's certainly very enjoyable having him there as the captain and, and playing under him. And uh, what about Hess? Has he given you many uh, words of advice after after the tour? Like, did he have much to say to you? Um, yeah, Hess. Um, you know, it was very good after the tour. He was um, he was positive, and uh, obviously him and uh, Baz have, have had a really really good relationship for a long time, and the, the team's been run extremely well. Um, and I think just for for that month, um, you know, it was it's great when you, you get a. I suppose a series um, to, to captain as opposed to one-off games which you've had in the past and you can um, try and gel as a unit um, and, and Hess was very good at uh, you know I guess whilst trying to continue the, the team ethos that, that we've been doing for a long time um, allow for subtle changes which are natural when there's a change in personnel but um, very much looking forward to, to Brendan joining the side again and um, and, uh, and playing under him. You've got uh, Australia uh, coming up in November which Baz is joining you back for. Uh, what sort of are you hoping to get out of that tour? Because obviously Australia have lost a few of their key players or like a few retirements have occurred over the last like month or two. What, what 
what are you sort of aiming to get out of that tour in particular? Oh, I mean, we, we certainly want to come away with a, a serious win. That's that's what you want out of any tour. And, um, you know, this this one's no different. Um, yeah, like you say, there's there's been a few retirements, but um, you know, there's a reason why Aussie are, are the best, and it's because they've got so much depth. So, um, particularly in their part of the world, um, it's going to be an extremely, extremely tough um, challenge for us, but one that all the guys are looking forward to. And just finally, uh, the pink ball you're going to be playing with in Adelaide, and I believe you've got a practice game before that, uh, just so you can get used to it. What are your thoughts on it, and do you think it'll be quite a, a game-changer, I suppose, this, this game in Adelaide? Yeah, I think it's it's going to be different. Um, it's something that hasn't been tried before. There's been a few domestic games that um, have sort of dabbled in, in the day-night um, sort of longer format. Um, so, you know, it's exciting to, to I suppose, be the, one of the first teams to, to try it on the international stage. And, um, you know, there's a lot of unknowns, but um, that comes with, uh, you know, I guess an exciting opportunity. That was Kane Williamson there. The first test match against Australia is on November 5. Finally, New Zealand WRC driver Hayden Padden is in France this weekend competing in the Tour de Course. The event, which has returned to the WRC for the first time in seven years, is well known for its tarmac tracks and numerous corners. Padden's ninth in the driver standings. Although the championship has already been decided, Frenchman Sebastien Ogier claimed the driver's title in the last WRC event in Australia. I spoke with the man from Geraldine about what challenges he faces on tarmac tracks on the French island of Corsica. Yeah, it's obviously not, not our favourite surface, but it's uh, something we have to learn uh, to be fast on. So, yeah, it does require a different driving technique and a different mindset. You've got to be a lot smoother and a lot more precise. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the, the grip levels and the speeds are a lot higher. So um, it's really just a matter of adapting that different driving style and We've done a little bit of uh, specific training uh, before this event to try and learn a bit more. Um, so, you know, if we can put that to practice uh, over the course of the rally, then that'd be good. I see that you've uh, sort of uh, gone and got some help from, is it Nicholas Bernardi, um, for sort of practicing on um, tarmac. Could you give us a bit of a run through of what sort of uh, sort of help he's given you? Yeah, as I say, it's really just uh, opened my eyes a little bit to the the technique that's needed on the surface, you know, it's quite different to the, the style that you're using there on gravel, and it's really about having smooth uh, brake uh, and throttle applications, um, smooth steering inputs, and, and, you know, it's just a different mindset, and, and all those things, uh, you know, when you're going 180, 190 k's in a, in a world rally car, to try and do things slowly uh, takes a little bit of a learning and a little bit of adapting, but, um, you know, I've got a much better understanding on, on the, the path that we need to go on now. So, as I say, you know, the next sort of two or three tarmac events is a matter of trying to put that into practice. I see um, in uh, re- your release that you sent out this morning, you sort of said that you weren't aiming at this stage for a podium. Um, could you give us a bit of a run-through of what your goals are for, for this stage? Uh, you know, the expectations are a lot lower on the tarmac. Um, you know, there's a lot of people with a lot more experience than what we have, and... Uh, as I say, it's not our favoured surface at this at this point in time. So, you know, the only way that we're going to improve is that we need to do as many stage miles as we can and, and get the experience. And so to do that, we have to try and finish the rally. So we're not focusing on any sort of result-specific uh, goal-specific. It's, it's really about learning for the future. Um, could you give us a bit of a run-through of just how windy this course is? I understand it's uh, got a nickname. Yeah, it's always been uh, nicknamed the, the Rally of 10,000 Corners, and uh, 
you know, that's probably no lie. Actually, there, there probably is uh, that, if not more. So it's uh, very, very twisty. Um, even in the fast sections, there's still a lot of corners. So that means for this event, the pace notes are very important because you simply can't remember the, the stages, uh, and a lot of the corners look, look the same as well. So. The, you know, the job we're done in Ricky now, and, and then obviously the job that John's got delivering them is uh, is absolutely vital. You're, uh, I see, uh, ninth in the driver standings, and uh, Sebastian's claimed the uh, title or the the title for this year. What are your goals for the rest of the year? What where would you like to see yourself finish in the standings? Uh, to be honest, the championship standings don't really mean anything to me. Um, doesn't really matter if you're you're fourth, fifth, eighth, or ninth. You're not up the front, so it doesn't doesn't matter so much. So. You know, the rest of this year is about accumulating experience and, and knowledge and, and uh, building on that for the future so that we can uh, be up the front in the, you know, in the not-too-distant future. Hayden Patton. And that is extra time for this week. Feedback is always welcome via Twitter at RNZ Sport or our emails sport at Radio NZ. .co.nz I'm Matt Chatterton, bye for now Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott Stream the new Hulu original limited series We Were the Lucky Ones with Joey King and Logan Lerman And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.